Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Richie Fure, a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer as a member of Buffalo Springfield, a founder of the legendary band Poco, and a true gentleman who has called Colorado home since the early 70s. Welcome, Richie. <laughs> hey, thanks, G. Sitting here with you today is real special. You were at the epicenter of seismic musical and cultural changes from the 1960s moving through the 1970s. So let's set the table here. You were a Midwestern boy, good Midwestern stock. <laughs> Grew up in Yellow Springs, Ohio, a town of about 500 people when you add the college, Antioch College, into the mix different in the community. There was a lot of farm stuff going on back there, but we were a college town. That was home until I graduated from high school, and then off we went. When did you get that first guitar? I was eight years old. Ask my parents for a guitar for Christmas. I'm not exactly sure what the bug was that made me just want this instrument, but I asked him for the guitar, and I can remember waking up on Christmas morning and hidden over in the corner by a Christmas tree, I could see the shadow of a guitar. And man, my heart started pounding. It was like, this is great. And I went over to get the thing, and I looked at it. I'm colorblind, so I'm going to describe it as being puke green. <laughs> but it had cowboy scenes all over it, gut strings on it, you know. It was the furthest thing from what I thought was a real guitar. And so I don't know why I did this, man, because this isn't me. But I grabbed that guitar, walked up to my parents' bedroom, and I said, I'd like a real guitar. <laughs> ah, it's the furthest thing from my mind that I could be so inconsiderate. Here they were, man, trying to get me what I had asked for for Christmas. And I wasn't a happy camper. I can't believe it. <laughs> well, you need the right tool for the right job, There you Richie. go. <laughs> what manner of support did you receive from your parents? At first, they were a little hesitant. I mean, here I am, eight years old. I could barely get my hand around the neck of a guitar. We did go down to Springfield, which was the nearest big city close to Yellow Springs, and went to Morelli's Music Store. And we talked to the guitar teacher. Her name was Lois Northheim. I can't even believe I can remember that right now off the top of my head. They, too, were very concerned about whether or not I was going to be able, you know, at such an age, I mean, to hold this thing. It was as big as I was, get my hand around the neck. But we said we'd give it a try. And so I took some lessons from this lady and was able to at least get through the process. And I remember we had a little group that had three guitar players and two steel guitar players in a little music group back then that were taking lessons at Morelli's Music Store. It was a challenge, but my parents were supportive. I remember my dad, he said, if you'll play trumpet, I'll get you the guitar. He wanted me to play a trumpet. And so there was kind of like a handoff, you know, a back and forth on that. And so I also picked up trumpet, you know, when I was a, a youngster and played through high school. Your path started when you went to New York and you intersected with some stills guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I went to Otterbein College up in Worcesterville, Ohio, and joined the a cappella choir. I don't really read music. I mean, I can read music because I had to learn kind of like what the staff was all about and the notes on the staff when I was taking some lessons way back when. But I can't read music that well. And 
I won the college freshman talent show singing They Call the Wind Mariah. You know, an old... Show mm, tune. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I knew it from Peter, Paul, and Mary. But uh, anyway, two guys, Bob Harmelink and Nels Gustafson, latched on to me after that. Bob was a freshman. Nels was a sophomore in college. We actually put together a little folk group that went around and serenaded the sorority houses up around Ohio State and up there in that area of Ohio. But it was through this a cappella choir that I made it to New York. Almost didn't make it, though. When my appendix ruptured during Christmas vacation, my sophomore year, and that was the year I actually dropped out of school, but we had planned a tour, a Northeastern tour. The the choir was going to do a tour, and we saw that we had a day off, and my friend Nels Gustafson, who could sell you anything, he was bound to determine we were going to go down into Greenwich Village because we were learning all these Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul, and Mary songs. He was sure that we were going to just set the village on fire, you know, and become the next big thing. Oh, boy. But we almost didn't make it, but I did convince and was able to get the college to allow me to um, keep going back and forth to the rehearsals, and then I signed off on the fact that they would let me go on tour, and we went down into the village. We played at three clubs, the Café Wa, the Four Winds, that's where I met Stephen, coming back to that, and there was one other club, but we actually made it into three clubs. Nels talked his way into three clubs in Greenwich Village, just carrying our guitars, knocking on the door and telling them, hey, we're here, and I mean, they had set entertainment, but the ones that like the Café Wa that let us play... We played during switchover of audiences. We thought that was a big time, though. Man. I mean, we were doing good. But I got the bug and talked him into going back. And when we went back, after the guys finished up their the second year of college, we went back in the summertime. And that's when I met Stephen playing in his past-the-basket little club on West 3rd Street called The Four Winds. We became very good friends back then. I was so impressed with Steve. He was just this young little guy, man, but he could sure play the guitar and could sing, and we became good friends. And there was another guy in the village at the time. He put together a group of nine, like the New Christy Minstrel Serendipity Singer, Back Porch Majority type, seven guys and two gals with the banjo and the 15 guitars and stand-up bass and all that. And Stephen was a part of that. And so for six months, that group did so much. It was unbelievable. We were actually named after a club in the village, the Cafe Agogo. So we were the Agogo singers. It's a hot and a dusty road. It's a hard and a heavy load. Sometimes the folks you meet ain't always kind. Gosh, what a name. That one's aged well. (laughs) But he put together this musical review. I mean, this is back in 1964, an Americana review of all these old folk songs. So we did this play in this little playhouse that was next door to the Cafe Wa, which was pretty cool. So we did an off-Broadway play. It was off-off-Broadway in two weeks. It was a quick run, but we did good. We made a record for Roulette Records. That was an interesting experience with Hugo and Luigi. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, oh, boy. We did a on-Broadway Tonight television show. This is all in, in a six-month period of time, and then we did a three-week run of supper clubs in Texas. There was a whole lot of things, man, that took place, but the group, when we went back to New York, we broke up. I like to eat, 
So I got in touch with a cousin of mine who was an executive at Pratt & Whitney Aircraft and got a job at Pratt & Whitney Aircraft up at East Hartford, Connecticut. And Stephen took part of this Agogo Singer Band and worked his way across Canada to California. It was there that he met Neil Young. They met him in a club up in Toronto as they were working their way across Canada. But while I was working up at Pratt & Whitney Aircraft, the village was an interesting place, and there was a guy that was living across the street from me on uh, Thompson Street. He came up to visit me. He was a musician of sorts. His name was Graham Parsons. <laughs> <laughs> of sorts. And of sorts. And uh, he had a record that he said, you got to hear this record. I mean, this is music like none of us have ever, I mean, this is good stuff. And it was the Bird's first record. And it just grabbed me. I'd told my cousin that I was in for 25 years for the gold watch and everything at Pratt and Whitney, and I was going to be there forever. But when I heard that record, like uh, three months was enough time for me. I got a hold of Steve. And after several weeks, it was more time than I wanted because I kept waiting for him to write back to me, you know. And there was a process there where I'd sent a letter to his dad in El Salvador and the thing came back to him. He said, you don't have enough postage on it. And so I had to send it back to him. You know? He got a hold of Steve and Steve got a hold of me and said, come on out to California, man. I got a group together. All I need is another singer and we'll be ready to go. And so I put in my resignation at Pratt & Whitney and got the airline ticket and away we went. You and Stephen had a chance meeting with Neil Young. Uh, it has become the stuff of legend. Before the days of cell phones and computers where you could email and get in touch with everybody, Neil had come to California with a bass player, Bruce Palmer. He had come down knowing that Stephen had gone to Southern California. I guess they had been there for about... I don't know, three, four weeks and couldn't find us because, I mean, you know, we <laughs> we couldn't move around very easily ourselves, man. We were poor <laughs> and just getting around. We didn't have a car or anything. But one day we were with uh, a friend of ours who was helping us. His name was Barry Friedman. We were on Sunset Boulevard, Stephen and myself and Barry. We were heading east on Sunset Boulevard and right in front of this little coffee shop called Ben Frank's, Gone west on Sunset Boulevard towards the 405, Neil and Bruce were leaving Los Angeles to go to San Francisco. They were done with Los Angeles. Right there, stuck in traffic, here was this old 53 hearse with Ontario license plates in it, and there was no doubt who it was because traffic was moving so slowly that we got a hold of each other and said, hey, 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 I think we stopped traffic right there on the boulevard <laughs> when we pulled into uh, Ben Frank's parking lot. That was real, man. I mean, it was like a coincidence. I don't know. I don't think it was a coincidence. It was something that was planned providentially. It was so unique. It's a great story. The band Buffalo Springfield yeah. took its name from a steamroller? Yeah. There was a steamroller that was working on Fountain Boulevard where Stephen and I were living at the time. And somehow or another, a sign got taken off of it and put up on a mantle in the house that we were staying and looked good to us. And so we said, that looks like a good name for a band. Buffalo Springfield, obviously a seminal group in the late 60s. Short lifespan. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Best known for Steve's protest song, for what it's worth. Yeah. But many other incredible tunes, many of them Neil's, you sang. Mm -hmm. Is it wrong to assume that Neil just had not 
yet discovered the confidence in his own voice. I know Stephen called me out there to be a singer. Stephen and Neil were such prolific writers at that time. We were just learning all the songs that Stephen had written. And I had taught Stephen, nowadays Clancy can't even sing, that Neil taught me when I met him in New York, going back and forth, Pratt and Whitney, and coming back to this little apartment that we had. Hey, who's that stomping all over my face? Where's that silhouette I'm trying to trace? Who's putting sponge in the bells I once rung? And taking my gypsy before she's begun? Why Neil didn't sing those songs, you know, I've heard so many different stories on that. I really don't know, but they had to find a place for me to do something because I wasn't writing. And so they said, well, you're the singer. You sing these songs. But I don't know whether it was Amon Erdogan or whether it was from Green and Stone. It doesn't seem like looking back on it now and knowing Neil, I think I know him, well, I kind of know him. Uh, never mind. I don't think it was him that actually made the decision that he wouldn't sing those songs, but I enjoyed singing those songs. One of them was the first single Buffalo Springfield released, but I think another one that I sang should have been the single. I think it was much more accessible for the time than nowadays Clancy Can't Even Sing, which is a pretty esoteric song with its time changes and all kinds of stuff. But if we would have released Do I Have to Come Right Out and Say It, I think it would have had a much bigger impact on the world of AM radio at the time. Do I have to come right out and say it? Tell you that you look so fine. Do I have to come right out and ask you to be mine? If it was a game, I could play it Trying to make it, but I'm losing time I gotta bring you in, you're overworking my mind. When you started writing uh, and contributing, you kind of yeah. fired a sounding shot, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> kind Woman. Uh -huh. uh, that song made Buffalo Springfield maybe the first rock band to experiment with country sounds within a rock context. Certainly one of them. Obviously, the birds were doing something right around that same time. But yeah, that was something that was definitely new. You got to think what was going on in California. You had the Beach Boys, you had the Turtles, and you had that kind of a sound. You had Love coming and the Doors, such incredible different sounds, you know. And then here we were, man, we're going to play with country music. Now, what's that all about, boys? <laughs> Written for your wife, Nancy. Yeah. But that ferment of emerging of country and rock influence, it informed everything you did from that point on. It did. And it did to both good and bad because, boy, once they want to, they, you know, mm -hmm. want to pigeonhole you into this is what is expected of you now. You know, that's all that you can do, you know, and that wasn't all the genre that I wanted to explore when I was doing and writing music. But certainly it was something that I'm very proud of today. And I think Poco has definitely been neglected in uh, the acknowledgement of what trail they did blaze for a lot of bands. Let's explore that. Jim Messina had engineered the Springfield's mm -hmm. yep. recordings and took over as the bass player for the the last album, correct? Yep. Then when Buffalo Springfield imploded, you and Jim formed Poco. Right. 
And the biggest move was making a call to Colorado and recruiting Rusty Young, phenomenal steel guitar player, and George Grantham, Mm. the drummer. Mm -hmm. Uh, They both were in the band Benzie Crick, which was Denver's biggest band, or one of them at that time in the late 60s. Poco, a pioneering group, you allude to the country influences. The late Glenn Fry of the Eagles once told me that he used to sit on the couch in the rehearsal space and watch you guys. Yeah. He, he came, obviously took pretty good notes, Richie. He took really good. I wish he would have shared some. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he came over to our house on Laurel Canyon Boulevard, man, and just sat there and listened and and took it all in. Obviously, the Eagles, a lot of commercial success that Poco deserved. Messina left to form Loggins and Messina with Kenny. Timothy B. Schmidt replaced Randy Meisner on bass. And Paul Cotton, a wonderful singer, songwriter, guitarist, joined the fold. And that version of Poco moved out to Colorado in the fall of 1970. What precipitated that to relocate out of Los Angeles? Well, there was a lot going on, and one thing that sticks out in my mind was Nancy, my wife, had read in the paper that a child born in Los Angeles in 1970, before, you know, they were X amount age, just a young kid, they would already develop emphysema. And so we decided, okay, it's time to maybe move out to some other area. That was part of it. Los Angeles was just overcrowded. I mean, I love California, but I'm glad I live in Colorado. Let me tell you, I'm so glad I live in Colorado. Was there Rusty and George's influence part of the decision to Actually, land here? Actually, no. George had already, believe it or not, had already rented a place in San Francisco. That was the place we were headed. That was like going from the frying pan into the fire, you know? And I can remember going up and telling George that we had made another decision to move to Colorado when he was on a ladder painting. I'm thinking, oh man, he's going to drop this bucket of paint on me any minute now. So when we told him that, hey, we're going to move to Colorado. It wasn't the first choice. And then when we moved here, goodness sakes, we had all kinds of people tell us you know, where to go and where not to go. Don't ever go near Netherland, you know. They don't like hippies up there. So where did we end up, man? Our house ended up, you know, just a few miles from Netherland. But, ah, oh, crazy. Poco, in my mind, one of the great live acts of that era. The most joyous performances I saw from any band. And not most of that stemmed from you, just yeah. being on stage and conveying that love of performing. Joyous is the word. Does that resonate? Yeah, it does, because there was a lot going on. And, uh, you know, I think what we wanted to do, I, even in Jimmy's in my own mind, I don't know if we actually discussed it or not, but, you know, we wanted to create an atmosphere when people came to our concerts that they could actually leave behind what was Outside that door, there was the Vietnam War that was still going on. There was personal crises that people might be going through or whatever, you know. But we wanted to come in to that setting in that concert hall or gymnasium, wherever it happened to be, and just be able to let it go for a while. Just let it go and enjoy the music that we created. We wanted to create an atmosphere where people could just get away for a few minutes and just enjoy what we were doing. And Poco was really good at that.
wonderful voice and Rusty Young playing that pedal steel, <laughs> making it sound like everything from a string section to a jet airliner if he wanted to. George Grantham behind the drum kit, yeah. maybe the best high harmony singer. background singer of all time. Yeah. Great musicians. I know when, when we did bring Rusty out, the guy that uh, he was a road manager for the Springfield that told us about Rusty he said, I know the best steel guitar player in the world. He lives in Denver. And when we did bring him out, he lived up to all of his press. But I mean, he was such an innovator. Not only, you know, your country sounds, but I, how many guys are running a steel guitar through a Leslie cabinet, making it sound like an organ? You know? I mean, he's, he's like an innovator. He hot rotted that Yeah, thing. he hot rotted, man. <laughs> <laughs> Still see him at Carnegie Hall, man. I think he thought he was Pete Townsend, you know, pushing the thing over on the side. We were waiting for him to light it up, playing it on the ground, you know, at Carnegie Hall, you know. Oh, my goodness sakes alive. <laughs> You wrote one of the great singles of the 70s, A Good Feeling to Know, yeah. a song that you have said you wrote while walking down the road near your house in yeah. Netherland. Yeah. That classic line, Colorado Mountains, I can see your distant sky. Yeah. What triggered the song? Well, I think moving here for one thing, and then the whole atmosphere of being in Colorado, but there was also a musical element to it as well as a simple lyrical element. And the musical element was that Poco never had what you would call a hit single. And at this particular time in our career, we were determined. I mean, we had all the FM radio music people playing our music all the time, but we could never get over that AM single. And uh, we thought we had it with good feeling to know. We thought it had all the hook, it had the chorus, it had everything that anybody could ever want from a hit single. looking for a producer. Jimmy had left the band at the time, so he wasn't producing. Jack Richardson became the producer of Good Feeling to Know, who produced the Guess Who and had all those AM hits with them. And so we certainly thought we were on the right track, and so did Jack. The thing that really kind of discouraged me was there was another band that was just coming out at that very time. And I remember we were back east listening to the radios. We're driving to the shows that we're going to, just waiting to hear it, you know, as some breakout single. And next thing I knew, man, we were listening to, I'm traveling down a road trying to loosen my load. I got, you know, and it's like, oh. And I, I my heart just kind of sunk at that time. So it was a crossroads in my life at that time. Yeah. It was an undeniable hit, except it wasn't a hit. Yeah. And I know you've thought a lot about it over the years. But if talent was the only barometer, the charts <laughs> would look a lot different, right? But when you got Take It Easy coming out by the Eagles at the very same time, I mean, come on, we're, we're pretty close in sound. Mm -hmm. And why 
I, I can't tell you why. All Wait, right, that okay. sounds like an eagle. Another eagle's like, oh, man, get you off can't of escape it, it Richie. Get off of it. You can't escape uh, I love it. Timothy. But it was devastating to me because I was driven at that time. All I thought about, all I wanted, because I'd seen what the success had done to Stephen and Neil. I mean, not done to them, but what success had happened to them. And Jimmy was off with Kenny, and Randy was now off with the Eagles. And it's like, hey. (laughs) What about me? What about me, you know? (laughs) And that's my ego speaking. You took a stab at it with Souther Hillman Fure, Mm -hmm. the brainchild of record mogul David Geffen, Mm -hmm. who was looking to create a ready-made supergroup along the lines of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. what he told me. J.D. Souther, a singer-songwriter in the Eagles mode, and Chris Hillman, the utilitarian member of the Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers and Manassas. I was always a sucker for your song, Falling in Love, the first single from Souther Hillman Fure. Was that signature guitar riff part of your composition, or did someone else contribute that? Actually, we had a very, very good guitar player in the band, Al Perkins, but the person that came up with that intro lick was a guy named Richie Podler. Oh, the producer. The producer. I really wanted Richie to be the producer at Good Feeling to Know. We'd already recorded two songs that he recorded in Columbia turned him down. The next progression, you know, we moved on. But when uh, we got to SHF, I think everybody was real comfortable with getting with Richie. And he was a very accomplished guitar player, Richie. And um, he said, I got this thing going over in my head. Let me come out and just see how it fits, you know. And so he came out, sat on the stool, man. Next thing he's, <laughs> he's like, wow, man, that's it. Let's go. Let's do it. Southern Hillman Puree. Didn't stick around that long. Sometimes things look better on paper, right? Well, that's exactly what happened with SHF, but we never got really the chance to develop it. And it was it was different, you know. I mean, this was something that somebody else put together. It wasn't something that I put together. Because with the Springfield, I mean, it was Stephen and I from the beginning. And then with Poco, it was Jimmy and me. The Souther Hillman Fure group was really the brainchild of David Geffen. When I called David and said, David, this isn't going to happen. Poco, you got any suggestions? And he said, no, hey, let's, here's Chris Hillman over here. He's looking for something to do. Uh, JD, you know, he's a great songwriter. And uh, we'll put you together and you'll start another super group. We'll, and I'm thinking, six years I've been at this. And this is all there is to it. <laughs> One great thing did come out of SHF. The aforementioned Al Perkins Mm -hmm. during the recording of the second album up at Caribou Ranch, the legendary studio outside of Netherland. You were worn out by the record company BS, as you allude to, and frustrated, disappointed with your career. You started talking with Al Mm -hmm. about Christianity. Al actually started talking to me about Christianity (laughs) because when Chris suggested that Al be in the band, I told him under no circumstances. Chris had played with him in Manassas. He played with him in part of the Burrito Brothers. He knew the musician that Al was. And for whatever reason, in the back of my mind, because he had a little fish sticker on his guitar that said, Jesus is Lord, I said, "Uh uh-uh. You know, Al could have been anything. I mean, he could have been a drug addict. He could have been a womanizer. He could have embraced any religion. 
but because he had that sticker on his guitar, that sticker, Jesus is Lord. I said, "Uh uh-uh, this guy's not in our band. The next thing I knew, he was in the band. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't very nice to him when he joined the band. I mean, I really tried to avoid him at all costs, and Al was just one of these guys, man, that it was just like every time I turned around, there he was, and not really saying anything, but just being one of the most gracious, nicest people that I'd ever met in my life. Changes were definitely on the horizon that I had no idea about what was going on in my life at this time, where I was driven, I was consumed with nothing more than being that rock and roll star. And I learned years later from a pastor friend of mine, Chuck Smith, who said, you know, stars burn out. (laughs) After the demise of SHF, Mm -hmm. you hurt your hand chopping wood. Was it severe enough that you thought your playing days might be over? At first I did. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, it was just another little incident along the way. I mean, living in Colorado, you want to be the mountain man. You know, I can take care of this. I can go out and a friend of mine and I, you know, we'd go out and cut down trees and bring them back up to the house and split them. And the only thing I didn't have was a big beard. I had everything else going for me, you know. I was splitting kindling. And I was holding on to a piece, and it just went right through and hit my finger. And it didn't cut me, but the impact of the axe, I had a glove on, of course. It just stiffened the finger up where I couldn't even make a bar chord on the guitar. I went down and had a shot of cortisone, if you can imagine them taking that needle and putting it in one side of your finger and then in the other side, you know. It works great today. But it was just another little incident along the way. There was a whole lot more going on in my life at that time than simply hurting myself with an axe. There was stuff that I didn't even know about. Well, I still have dreams Where you still love me That probably comes As a emerged and pursued a solo career and recorded three albums for Asylum in the late 70s. You were arguably the first rock star to make Christian music for the general market. It's interesting in retrospect, Richie. Someone has to (laughs) be the first (laughs) to die on a given mountain, right? Someone has to knock that door down for other people to walk through. I remember shortly thereafter, acts like Bruce Coburn, U2, Mm -hmm. sung about matters of faith, and they weren't burdened. Heck, they were celebrated for it. But when you came out, I remember you being on the cover of Crawdaddy magazine. Mm -hmm. It was a Peter Knobler interview, right? Mm -hmm. And as I recall, that changed everything to the sex and drugs and rock and roll crowd, Mm -hmm. you were all of a sudden the guy that nobody wanted to party with. That's right. And, you know, at that point in time, it didn't matter to me. I charted my own course. Well, I haven't, but the Lord has certainly charted my course for me. There was so much going on at that time. Peter had asked everyone from Muhammad Ali to Bruce Springsteen to me to write what it meant turning 30-whatever. And for me, 
it was my testimony because Al led me to saving faith in Christ at that time. And so it was my testimony. During this time, Nancy and I had been married for seven years and were now separated. And we were separated. We separated for seven months, which is a long time to be separated and then have something that precious restored. She had moved out of our house up in the mountains west of Boulder, and I can remember trying to write this testimony or write down what it means to turn 30 for Peter, who's a really good friend of mine, you know, and I couldn't get it done. I couldn't do it. Everything that I wrote just was just, it just didn't mean anything. And so I got a hold of Peter and I said, Peter, I'm really sorry. Thanks for asking me to be a part of this, but I, I can't do it. And he said, no problem. You're not the only one. There's about 10 other people that I really wanted to be able to do this, and they haven't got it done either, so we'll plan it for maybe the next issue. Shortly thereafter, I sat down to write down what it meant to turn 30, and it was just something that just went, it just flowed. I mean, I couldn't even stop writing. It was just like, this is it. (laughs) And I sent it off to Peter and read it, and he called me back and he said, I can't print this. He says, if I print this, this will be the end of your career. And I said, that's what it means to me to turn 30, print it. And so he printed basically my testimony in Crawdaddy Magazine, and he was faithful to that. (laughs) It was a change in, in life for me, you know. I was at a crossroads in my life, and I was having to make a decision, you know, what was, what was the most important thing in my life was music. And on I've Got a Reason, which was the very first solo asylum record that I wrote, I've got a reason to lie. Music was my life and finally took everything. Ain't it funny how you got it all and not a thing? That was a reflective of the things that were going on in my life. A lot of things were challenging at the time. What do you want to do? Want your name up there on Carnegie Hall's uh, marquee and the Hollywood Bowl and all those places? You know, is that what you want or do you want this family? You wouldn't compromise. You did I Still Have Dreams, mm-hmm. wonderful single, yeah. up, up the third solo yeah. album. With the record label, the external pressures of yeah. what you wanted to do, you abandoned music at that point yeah. and became the pastor of the Calvary Chapel uh-huh. here in Colorado. Yeah, we'd had a little Bible study before that because at this point in time, I'm like throwing up my hands saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? I <laughs> didn't have a clue. So we, we had a little Bible study, and then in 83, somebody came to me and said, when are we going to start church? And I said, when the Lord tells us we'll start church. So yeah, we started uh, in 83. Over the ensuing years, you did some performances, the odd Poco reunion at, at different junctures, right. formed the Richie Fure Band, and put out wonderful music with some wonderful people. Mm-hmm. We should mention Scott Sellen, your Scott, musical director. Mm-hmm. and Yeah, Aaron, who's Scott's son. Both of the Sellens are just incredible musicians. Scott's one of these guys that can play anything you put in front of him. I, I remember learning him coming to me one time telling me, we can play Crazy Eyes. Now, anybody that's familiar with that, I mean, it's such a production. The logistics of getting through that thing, the guitars to the banjos to the steel guitars to all these different parts, and we can do this. Scott played all the answers. He played the piano. He played the guitar. He played the banjo. He played the steel part. It's like, ah. 
Oh, thanks, God. And then his son, you know, who came along and who would have known, you know, that he was going to become the musician that, that he is. He's just following his dad's footsteps. I think it's a selling trait. But then to have my daughter, Jessie Lynch, she started singing on my records clear back when I did my very first devotional CD called In My Father's House. She came in and sang a couple songs. And then on I Am Sure, which followed that, she, I think, sang on almost all the tracks of that record. And she was uh, still living in New York at the time. Got married and moved back here to Colorado, and so she's been a staple in the live shows and all all the records that I've ever sung on. It's given me a different kind of sound to have not George's high voice up here, but now I got Jesse's high voice up here, you know, singing with me. And everywhere we go, people tell us how unique the sound is because of the father-daughter relationship the dna you know that comes from that and it's it's really it's really good and i could not be doing what i'm doing today if she wasn't along for the ride and i know it's a stress on her she has four kids now and somehow we all manage you know and we've been very fortunate over the years even the people that scott and aaron and alan have worked for you given them you know time off to go out and play and so yeah we get a chance to go out and satisfy that part of us Fill my heart with the promise that I hear in my father's house. There's a place for me in my father's house where I long to be. And you have alluded to maybe getting Deliverin', the classic Poco wow, album. Yeah, that's out another there. one now. Here we are, and uh, we're working on doing the Deliverin' album live again. So we're going to do Deliverin' again. We allude to making music again while still tending to your ministry. You took heat from the musical side of yeah. things, but. There was some heat from the other side, too, at various sure. junctures, right, yeah. to play what some considered the devil's music yeah. to be taking off. That didn't set well with some, I well, would Well, yeah, and interestingly enough, with all of my pastor friends, they were only encouraging, get out there and do it. But it comes from the peripheral folks that maybe just aren't really secure in who they are, what the Lord has for them. And for me, it's another platform. And I know when I go out and do a concert in a secular setting that I'm not there to proselytize, get right or get left, when they come to hear my story— they're going to hear my love for Jesus Christ. I mean, there's, uh, that's who I am. And I've never had anyone come to me after a live concert and said, boy, I, everything was fine except when you went there. You know, no one's ever done that. Now, you know, we're playing a couple songs in, in our live performances, and one of them that Scott and I wrote for I Am Sure called Overflow, which is no more, I mean, the name of Jesus isn't in it, but it's thanking him. And I get a chance to tell the people why we're there playing for him because of the gifts that, he, that God's given us. And to hear the whole audience just singing along with that is, I mean, it's just beautiful. It's just wonderful to, because I step out and just make sure that they're all doing what I told them to do. Because if they weren't, you know, they're in trouble. You are torn. Am I doing the right thing? Am I going in the right direction? Should I just abandon everything? Because when I first started to pastor Calvary Chapel up in Boulder, at that point in time, I had thrown my arms and said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And it didn't seem like there was really much else on the horizon, except, you know, we had this little Bible study, and now we're going to get into church. And so everything from that point on was back, and I did. I shut down everything that had anything to do with going out and playing a lot of music for all, uh, somewhere in the vicinity of eight to ten years, you know, which um, 
that's a long, how quickly people forget. And even today, getting out and playing, Colorado's hard. We're right here in the Denver Boulder area. It's hard for my band to play in this area. Why? I don't know. We can go back to the East Coast and play. We can go to the Southern California and the West Coast. But people know the brand name. And so they'll come out and they'll hear Poco. Yeah, I know them. But Richie Fure. Um, right. Uh, yeah, okay. It, it's just been difficult and it's been frustrating in a way. Well, I still can't wait to hear what's next. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you know. And you know what? I don't plan it. I mean, it'll just kind of unfold. I don't know what's next either, but we're going to keep pressing on as long as we can. The dreamers shooting high for the stars, making rock and roll music, playing country guitars. We blaze a trail for generations to come. Yeah, we were the dreamers, just some kids having fun. All right, tell me your favorite musician's joke. Oh, well, how do you get a musician to complain? I don't know. Pay him. <laughs> Richie Fure, thank you, my friend. Thanks, G. <laughs> <laughs> the Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C-O-L-O music.org.